This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, Geraldine Dude with you, and a big welcome to Extra. It's just lovely to have you company each Monday. Well, in a week from today, millions of Australians will be unfurling their long white Senate ballot papers. With dozens of names and a laundry list of parties, it can be one of Election Day's more confounding tasks, but an incredibly important one. As whoever has control of the Australian Senate will determine exactly what the government can and cannot finally do. So to look at the state of the Senate race, which we've it's been appealed to us to do this story, as very few are, as well as to unpack the complexity and complexities and quirks of Australia's upper house, I'm joined by two specialists, Professor Annika Gauya, who's a political scientist at the University of Sydney, and Cosmos Samaras, who was Labor's Victorian Deputy Campaign Director um, and a veteran campaigner and now director at the research firm Redbridge. Uh, welcome to you both. Good morning, Geraldine. Annika, I suppose it'll be slightly less that that unfurling long white paper, will it? Uh, due to um, due to some changes uh, in um, some rule changes. Yeah, two elections ago for the uh, the 2016 federal election, um, the uh, the voting rules were amended uh, uh, basically to discourage um, the practice of preference harvesting from micro parties and to abolish group ticket voting. So the upshot of of it for voters at the at the election uh, booths on Saturday is that not as many um, political parties and candidates are contesting the election um, and the system for allocating, well, for voters allocating preferences has changed slightly as well. So you have to number uh, six um, preferences above the line and um, 12 or more below the line rather than the, just the one or, um, you know, everything below the line. Now, I'm just going to, we're going to repeat that because honestly, I did not know that. And I mean, I do stay vaguely well-tuned and I just wonder how many. So we can't just do the one above the line anymore. No, it's got to be at least six above the line. Um, and at, and if you're voting below the line, uh, at least 12. Um, look, at the same time as the Electoral, the Electoral Commission uh, made these changes, they also introduced... Uh, what are, what are called savings provisions, um, which basically uh, the, the Commission does everything it can to try to infer the, um, uh, the intentions of the voter. So if you don't, you know, if you get to a situation where you don't number all six, um, it's probably uh, the case that your first vote will be counted anyway. But all of the polling um, officials are making that really, really clear, and it's clear on the ballot paper and the how-to-vote cards as well. Okay. And there's also, you have to have 1,500 registered members, do you not, before you can actually apply anymore? used to be 500? Yeah, that's that's correct as well. Um, I mean, that sort of does increase, obviously, the thresholds for micro parties or smaller political parties seeking to, to register in time for the election. But one of the, the most interesting things, I think, in our electoral system, and this is a quirk that Australia has, which makes it very distinctive uh, worldwide, is that you can also register a political party on the basis of having one elected parliamentarian. 
So many of the, the sort of smaller parties that we've seen registered, I mean, um, Rex, uh, Rex, Rex Patrick, his team in South Australia, have been registered as political parties simply because he holds a seat in Parliament. So that's a little bit of a, um, a curveball there, an exception to that 1,500 member rule. Okay, and just before I go to Cos, you, you have been lamenting the lack of attention on the Senate, haven't you? <laughs> Look, I certainly haven't, and for the reasons that you outlined at the beginning there, uh, Geraldine, um, I mean, the Senate is just as important as the lower house in terms of the passage of, of, of ordinary legislation. So who holds balance of power in the Senate is just as important as who holds balance of power in the House of Representatives. Because uh, how important do you assess the control of the Senate is? Oh, it's extremely important. If you th and if you look at uh, the actual race uh, that we're witnessing at the moment in Queensland, the ACT in Tasmania, and to a lesser extent South Australia, it, it could potentially have a very significant impact in terms of its composition. So Clive Palmer is obviously uh, pouring a lot of resources, particularly online, in terms of his um, online spending in Queensland uh, and vying for that last spot. In the ACT, there's actually an interesting contest now developing between the uh, independent candidate um, Pocock uh, and primarily focused on taking votes off the Liberal Party. So that could be... This is David Pocock, uh, the rugby player. Yes, that's right. Yes, that, that could be a uh, an interesting contest um, where the Liberal Party actually loses spot in the ACT. And in Tasmania, Jackie Lambie uh, is, is spending an incredible amount of money online trying to secure that extra spot in Tasmania. Uh, some of the polling that we've conducted over the last three to four weeks uh, in the ACT and Tasmania indicate that uh, both the Jackie Lambie network and uh, David Pocock could actually be elected. How, how much do, does the Senate reflect House of Representatives voting overall, you know, by and large, if you're looking at patterns? Well, the only real uh, and effective way for these types of candidates that I've just reeled off and parties can actually get that Senate vote up to a level that will get them elected is to actually staff the, the, the voting centres on the day uh, and hand out a had-a-vote card for the lower house. So hence, in Tasmania, you'll find the Jackie Lambie Network's volunteers will be present uh, and handing out how to vote cards in 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 both uh, critical seats like Bass and Braddon, and I think um, in okay. that situation you see um, uh, her preferences may actually um, Im impact the outcome of those two seats as well. Uh, well, that's so that in a way you ha you you haven't mentioned the idea of the of the voter saying, well, now I'll sort of uh, you know I'll balance them off one one lot in the Senate. And what, you haven't said that. That's not what you think really governs the outcome. No, no. You get you, there is always a, a a portion of the electorate that that does opt to do to to do two very different things um, from the, from the lower house to, to to the senate, but we do find that a very significant portion of voters will will turn up. They'll vote um, as they do in the in the lower house, and they they presented that tablecloth of a ballot paper in the senate yeah. and uh, quickly want to fill it in correctly and and get out of the voting centre. Um, you haven't mentioned the Greens yet, I don't think. Yeah, I, I, I don't. The Greens, this particular campaign, have not featured highly. I don't expect them to lose any any spots uh, at this election. I think there's a, there are three up for election. Um, I don't. Uh, there's not much heat there in terms of uh, 
you know them losing any any particular positions. Mm. Um, and I don't. And again, with the I mean the Queensland one, I think um, Annika is is t- terribly interesting, really, because you've got um, the uh, the candidates vying for the final two spots. One Nation founder Pauline Hanson chasing another term. You've got Clive Palmer, as Cos said, and you've got the Queen, former Queensland LNP Premier Campbell Newman also eyeing a switch to the federal stage. Yeah, that, that's that's right. It's a very interesting contest. And I mean, one of the, I suppose you asked about the the um, uh, the differences between uh, the House of Reps vote and the Senate vote. I mean, obviously the Senate is a completely different electoral system. So if political parties poll roughly the same in terms of their first preference vote in the House um, and in the Senate, um, because the Senate is, um, senators are elected according to a system of proportional representation, this means that it's easier for smaller parties or parties with a, a lower uh, percentage of the vote to get elected because they need that quota of 7% rather than getting, you know, 50, mm. uh, 50 plus percent in the House of Reps. So in Queensland, as you said, we've got um, Clive Palmer vying for the seat, Campbell Newman. It looks like Pauline Hanson will be elected. I think you've got to put the, the Greens and Labor back in the picture for that final Senate seat as well. Um, Clive Palmer in 2019. What, what giving um, them how many? Giving them that would give them what three well, seats? The, the, the coalition will definitely get two of mm. that of the six that are up. Labor will definitely get one, and Pauline Hanson will oh, definitely get one. For the last two seats that are in contention, there it'll be first of all a contest between Labor and the Greens, and then if either of those parties or which party is eliminated there, um, it'll be a contest uh, with the UAP. And um, with Campbell Newman, yeah, I'm coming to and, Clive- and George Christensen is also going. He he's <laughs> he's behind he is. his he leader is, um, exactly. Uh, he's, he's yeah, he's on a spot that I, I doubt that he uh, that he will be elected. But I mean, part of the Senate contest is about brand recognition, and that's why political parties want to saturate electors um, at polling places with how to vote cards. But that's also why it's very common practice for parties that are known as Senate parties, so like the Greens, um, One Nation, Palmer, doing a similar strategy, running candidates in all of the House of Representative seats. So they've got someone there Mm. um, in terms of the branding and the recognition that they hope will translate through to a Senate vote as well. Let me just tell listeners that uh, Professor Anika Gaia from the University of Sydney and Cosmos Samaras um, is now at the research firm Redbridge, are our guides through the Senate thicket. Um, now, because you've done some particularly interesting work talking about the UAP, you've done some focus groups with them. Uh, tell us what you've discovered. Yes, uh, we, we, we've, we've obviously been speaking to... Uh, what we will define as UAP voters or, in, or, or, or Australians who intend to vote for UAP at this election. And the, the first thing I would say is that they are significantly more motivated than, than 2019. In 2019, the UAP vote was more of a sort of um, a vote of apathy, vote of, of, of um, disinterest from a particular cohort of voters. At this election... There is a very significant cohort out there that are, that are motivated to to send a signal to the two major parties, particularly in Victoria and New South Wales, but obviously uh, in in some pockets in Queensland as well. Um, and that is obviously a, a result of the uh, of the pandemic, right? Mandates, lockdowns, etc. 
But you say, um, or told our, our, um, uh, our producer, that in fact they are now, one could argue, the broad church in Australian politics, that they've got a conservative libertarian strand and the mm. economically disenfranchised. And, that, and right. they're really diverse in a way that the other um, populist right-wing party we think of, One Nation, is, is older and whiter and is not. That's right. There are two two arms to the Palmer vote. We, we call them the red and the blue arm. There is individuals who've come off the, the, the largely the conservative side of politics and uh, individuals who've come off the, the left side of politics, but in particular the Labor Party. Uh, within that bucket, um, when, we, when we do sit down with people and we talk to them, they are extremely diverse. We've had um, people from all religious faiths in the room, uh, gender, uh, occupations, and so on. So there isn't actually a very distinct um, uh, pattern about who they are. Um, there is a, a myth that the, they, they are largely white, older blokes, that, um, and that's actually not the case. And you could see that right now in early voting centres, if, um, particularly in, in Victoria, where I live, we, if I go today, which I, I do t uh, intend to do, and that is vote early, I will probably be confronted with a fairly diverse volunteer um, uh, workforce out there. Are, th are they our Trumpists? You could say that, yes. Yes, yes. And, and particularly, the, uh, if you look at the Trump vote, it's, very, it's motivated in very similar ways, economic... Uh, 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 well, being disenfranchised for economic reasons. They feel that people have forgotten reasons. about them. Yes, that's right. They all feel that they're, they're, they're suffering some form of cultural status anxiety, so, you know, largely white males, um, or individuals who have basically seen their their quality of life deteriorate over the last 10 years and, and feel that no one represents them politically. It is interesting, Annika, because, you know, when we've asked um, every um, editor we've asked uh, in our Election Express, and they're all independents, have actually this time said that Clive Palmer advertising spend has made no difference whatever. They've been quite adamant about it. Uh, but it certainly has, it hasn't come to them. They admit it may have gone, it hasn't come to the small independents. But uh, I wonder what your judgment is about it by comparison with last time. Oh, well, I mean, the magnitude of it, I think it's it's definitely going to stack up as being a greater spend than last time around. Um, he's doing all he can to saturate the media, saturate the, the polling places. All the reports I've had from polling places, there's definitely a UAP uh, representative uh, everywhere. I mean, the problem, I suppose, with uh, parties like the United Australia Party and this sort of policy and ideological diversity uh, that Cosmos was talking about is that um, it really does sort of muck up our expectations about the configurations of parties in, in the Senate. So if Palmer, you know, if the, if the United Australia Party um, does pick up a, a Senate seat in, in Queensland, for example, we can't automatically sort of, you know, assume that he's going to vote with the government or against the government as part of a block with the conservative side of politics or, or the progressive side because these ideologies don't really you know, align with our traditional understanding of, of how parties ought to work in Australia. So it's really hard to, to make, you know, um, judgments and, and sort of predictions around the UAP. Um, also because, you know, another thing that is quite distinctive in our, in our campaigns and the way in which we report 
up to elections is that we don't ask about the Senate vote at all. You know, we're so concentrated mm. on polling for the House of Representatives. There's very, very little work that's being done um, in the in the Senate space. So, so Geraldine, that's probably a very long-winded way of saying I actually don't know. Um, <laughs> okay, no, well, I like it. That's honesty. In fact, there are a couple of questions that have come from listeners that I want to put. Yeah. Um, um, the, one says, isn't the quota 14% cause, not 7%, because it's a half-Senate election? I believe so. Yes, I think so. But... Oh, and I said seven. Oh, that was my that, yeah. That was you. That was my mistake. I said seven. Yeah, okay. Apologies. That's very true. It's fourteen percent. All right. Oh well, that that's you know yeah that's more considerable, isn't it? And the other one, um, going back to your research, polling research, because I wonder, and the possibility of say David Pocock in the ACT, or indeed Kim Rubenstein mm. and the Jackie Lambie tas- uh, candidate uh, Tanya Tyrrell, I think it is. Um, mm. What influence? <laughs> Can you guess what influence they might bring on legislation or decisions? Is it, they sort of, yeah, what have they been saying? Well, definitely in relation to the ACT, um, uh, Pocock will, will uh, obviously pursue a very strong climate change agenda. Uh, if you look at the, um, the the material that he's, his campaign has been circulating within the ACT, it's very clearly focused on that and Integrity Commission uh, and so on. I think in relation to the Jackie Lambie network, I think it's uh, business as usual in terms of how she she um, uh, functions within the Senate. And I think that the brand that she's developed for herself is actually very, very popular, in, in particularly in the northern parts of Tasmania, representing, again, we'll go back to that point, a disenfranchised uh, working class constituency that feels like they, they don't have any representation by the major political parties. And our research indicates that in Tasmania, most of her vote for, for, for her candidate right now is coming off the, the Liberal Party. Very strong chance the Liberal Party actually loses a spot in Tasmania Goodness. to her candidate. Gee whiz. Isn't that extraordinary to hear? Uh, another question from a listener um, to you, uh, Annika. Is Clive Palmer paying people to volunteer at polling places like he did last election? Either of you can answer that. Do you know? I would say most most definitely. He's got the funds to spend, uh, and that's a legitimate yeah. way to spend them. You, you agree, yeah. Coz? Yeah, he, he he definitely in 2019 had a very uh, um, significant spend when it came to hiring people to hand out how to vote cards on election day and at pre-poll. I think at this election there is a caveat to that. Uh, is, uh, we do know that, for example, in Victoria, uh, the, the it is quite organic in some places. So I don't think he's spending a dime in, in some of some some voting centres around Melbourne's outer western suburbs mm. and northwestern suburbs. It's actually quite um, if you turn up to these voting centres they're just coloured yellow. Gee, it's everywhere. Really? Yeah. Um, Incidentally, I just want—it's Tammy Tyrrell, by the way, not Tanya Tyrrell, which is who's Jackie Lambie's advisor. Yep. And um, okay, now what about Nick Xenophon's comeback in South Australia, Annika? Is this significant or not? Um, well, you well, know, look, attempt at. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so the South Australian contest is interesting because we have um, the two senators who were formerly associated with the Nick uh, Xenophon team, Sterling Griff and and Rex, Rex Patrick, um, up for uh, up for election. And and Rex Patrick is obviously running as as an independent in his uh, Rex Patrick team. Um, Nick Xenophon is back on the ballot paper, so um, you know, thinking about where the vote might go in South Australia. If Labor's support translates through to the Senate vote, I'd expect that they would potentially pick up an extra seat uh, in South Australia. 
that might the Greens might be uh, contesting that seat as well, although they're the two parties that would be in the running for that. Uh, but then Nick Xenophon, yes, comes into it um, as well. The question is whether or not after after a, an absence from politics, uh, voters recognise the Xenophon brand again. Mm. Um, and I'm yeah, I'm not sure whether they uh, whether they will. Um, uh, the Greens have put in a strong campaign with Barbara Pocock down there. So I, I think the sort of the contest is probably more between the Greens and Labor in South Australia. And yeah. hypothetically, Cos, and I stress hypothetically, if uh, Anthony Albanese does win, what is the likeliest makeup of the Senate and what would that mean in a practical sense down the track? A minefield, in my opinion. <laughs> it's, it's um, look, I'm looking at at least... Uh, three three Senate spots being lost by the Liberal Party, one in Victoria, one in Tasmania, one in the ACT at this stage. We have a week to go. Uh, one one loss um, 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 from the Labor Party in Queensland, uh, and that's effectively the makeup. So, you know, um, the Liberal Party's pre- um, uh, the LNP's uh, composition in the Senate will be significantly lower. However, uh, there will be a very significant crossbench to be dealing with, I think, up to, up, up to about nine, not including the Greens. Nine, including the Greens. My no, good. not including. Not, not including, include, not including yep. the Greens, right. And, and what do you see, Annika? Yeah, I, I see a sort of a similar, a similar scenario. I definitely think that the coalition will, will lose seats. It'll come down to, in the end, that, that makeup of the, of the crossbench. So I think the Greens will hold their existing um, nine seats. I think they, they may pick up another in, in South Australia. Mm. Um, and if we get David Pocock elected too, in, um, if, if he's elected in, in ACT, um, we have a sort of a significant, I suppose, coalition of, of climate Mm-hmm. Um, climate senators. So I, I think there may be a significant opportunity for, or a window opportunity for change on on climate legislation there. Very interesting. Look, thank you both. Uh, that was, uh, I think, you know, quite enlightening. Um, political scientist Professor Annika Gallia from the University of Sydney, Cos Samaras from the research firm Redbridge. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, gentlemen. Well, while you digest that, uh, hear a bit more. Up next, the newspaper editors get on board the Election Express. Yes, each week we check in with hard-working editors from independent newspapers who know their communities and regions very well. This week we're headed to the vast electorate of Parks in New South Wales, where Lee O'Connor's paper, The Canamble Times, has been operating since 1885. The Times covers Canamble, Galagambone and the wider western New South Wales region. She's also developed the Western Plains app as a source of information for its far-flung readers in places like Walgett or Burke. So, Lee, welcome to Saturday Extra. Hello, Geraldine. How are you? Very good, thanks. And in Sydney, Marie Ma. Now, Marie is General Manager of Vision China Times, which publishes a free, popular Chinese newspaper that's distributed widely in several states, accompanied by digital versions and lots of social media as well, so very much of the moment. Hello, Marie. Hello. Uh, now, Marie, your readers are Chinese speakers living in Sydney, Brisbane, the Gold Coast, Melbourne and Perth. How have you That's been right. covering the election? 
Uh, so we've been covering the election quite closely on the different policies of the different parties. We've been doing candidate interviews um, or paying attention to, close attention to the three debates. And yeah, so in general, um, the election for the past three to four weeks has been top news item, basically, or across our, pla- uh, our media platforms. And do you have a lot of interaction from readers? Yes, we do. So we got lots of um, letters to the editor, we have commentary and even people calling up to the office. Yeah. (laughs) And would you say that you cover both long-term residents or, you know, first, second generations together with newer arrivals from, say, Hong Kong, together with new mainlanders? I mean, is it the whole spectrum? Yes, it is. So you're a very interesting example then, aren't you, of getting a range of views. Now, I I appreciate there are probably many patterns, but have things changed as this rather long election campaign has uh, been underway? I would say most people had their minds pretty much made up before it began. And not shifting, you don't think? No, we haven't really seen a huge shift. Um, It just seems like the... Because traditionally, Chinese-speaking uh, voters are more um, have a bit of a more trend towards the Liberals, mm. and we still see that trend quite strongly in this election as well. Right, and in different parts of the country, is, is, does that play out? Is that a common story? Yes, it's pretty much a common story. The only slight difference that we see is that those who who's been here for a lot longer, like two or three decades, and who are more financially sound or definitely leaning towards the Liberals because they're seeing as better economic managers and better policies in relation to small businesses, which the Chinese community are small business uh, business owners. Mm -hmm. Um, Those who's been here slightly less time, um, who may not be that well off, are more likely to go for Labor because they believe Labor supports more like have better social welfare programs and things like that, yeah. And what about other parties like the Greens and, say, One Nation or Clive Palmer's or or the Teal Independents? Don't see much of that coming through in the commentary. Most people are more focused on either Labor or Liberal as the major parties. There are some comments about, um, we did see about the United Australia Party because they were doing some campaigning within the ethnic communities, including the Chinese community as well. But apart from that, you don't really see much, yeah, campaigning uh, from the other smaller parties within Mm. our community, yeah. And what would you say, what issues matter to your readers? Like what are the real top-of-mind issues that you think sway them? You've you've referred to the small business, but anything else? I mean, Mm. I I can't help but ask you about the the whole Australia-China relations, given the Solomon (laughs) Islands deal now. Has that come to the forefront or not? Mm, not really within the community because, look, Australia-China relations is important to a Chinese-speaking voter because, you know, of course, uh, China is their is their homeland and, of course, they wish for good relations. But ultimately, we don't really see this swaying people's votes because the vast majority of the Chinese community here doesn't really have much to do with the Chinese government. And what they really care about is everything, you know, that the other English-speaking voters care about, which is, you know, who can run the country better. It's about jobs, about the economy, their livelihoods. And one thing that we thought really stuck out in this election is how well COVID is managed because um, 
Chinese-speaking voters, they're, they're really comparing how good we actually have it in Australia mm-hmm. compared to some of the horrific situation that's happening right now in China with the strict lockdowns and people actually dying from lockdowns, delaying their medical treatments rather than dying from COVID. I, I know some of your listeners might not fully agree, but, you know, it's all about perspective because Chinese-speaking voters are actually comparing the situation with what's happening in China. So they actually um, have given Liberals a lot of credit for really managing this COVID situation really well and plus the job keeper and um, all the grants for the businesses and, yeah. Mm, interesting. So very come no, through as a positive. Very yep. interesting. Well, let's hear from Lee O'Connor from the Canamble Times. And now, Lee, you're based in the electorate of Parks, which is a very safe national seat held by a margin that's almost as large as the electorate. Mark Coulton is the MP there with a 16.9% margin. Just what's the region like? Tell us if you wouldn't mind. Well, it's massive. <laughs> That's the first thing. It's 49% of the state. So if you draw a line almost along the Newell Highway, you nearly cut off the western half of the state and that's us. So it sort of stretches from, you know, Gunnedah and east of Moree right across to the South Australian border and down past Menindee Lakes and um, Condobolin. So it's a lot of small towns. The only bigger centres of population are Dubbo and Broken Hill, really. The, every, everywhere else is probably under 10,000 population. Gunnedah might be up there. but um, So lots of small towns, lots of vast areas. And, you know, I guess the common denominator is ag probably across the region, but we have a, quite a bit of mining you know, from your scattered opal mines up around Lightning Ridge through to Cobar and, and, you know, the traditional places like Cobar and Broken Hill, but also new mines around, um, well, newer mines around Ningen and Narromine and places like that. So, and, and the other thing is that very large Aboriginal population. So our electorate has one of the largest Aboriginal populations in the Australian Parliament. Ah, I see. And other than agriculture then, what do you think is influencing people most when they're thinking of their vote? I think some of the environmental issues, because they've been really coming to the fore over the last 10 years with um, the push for coal seam gas into the towards the east of the region. So that's been happening and there's a, a fair bit of pushback from the agriculture sector and, and local communities and the Indigenous sector. And, you know, they've been climbing into bed with the green activists and people, which so some unlikely alliances have been forming in that way in the east. And similarly, in the centre of the electorate and across along the Bow and Darling, uh, you know, there's lots of conflicts over water, especially when the drought was happening. Um, but even now, you know, uh, floodplain harvesting's an issue and just the sustainability of water use right throughout the electorate. Are there, are there any surprises, like when we're watching on um, Saturday week, <laughs> will Anthony Green suddenly say, now this is a surprise, like who are the other candidates in this seat that look so safe? Yeah, well, that's right. I, I would say most voters across the electorate probably don't even know who the, a lot of the other candidates are. It's really hard because it's so big and it takes a couple of days, two or three days to drive across from one side to the other. It's hard to campaign, 
you know, that's a big task for any of the candidates and it's hard to get known because there's no centralised media outlets. We're, we're all pretty much independent papers out here, apart from there's a couple of ACM titles, one in Dubbo and one in Moree. Everybody else has an independent paper. Uh, we have a couple of ABC or probably three or four different ABC stations covering the region. Um, there's some very big community radio stations, that sort of thing. So it's very, it's not centralised media, so very hard to get your message out. So there are actually nine candidates this wow. go round, Gee. which is a lot for us. We don't usually see that. So yes, yeah, so ranging from but, right, have you got have you got everybody there, sort of thing. Well, we've got most people. I don't. Know, we've got an independent. I don't know how teal he is, but um, there's an, a couple of indigenous candidates. One is a woman from Co, uh, from Brewarana who's running for the Greens, uh, Trish Frail, and another fellow, Derek Hardman, who's with the Indigenous Aboriginal Party of Australia. So that's a new trend for us, and you know, reflective of our population, I guess. And what about Clive uh, Palmer advertising? I'll ask Marie about that in a moment too. Because that's, <laughs> that's been interesting replies from editors actually. Yeah, well, we've heard rumours about Clive Palmer's deep pockets when it comes to electric election advertising, but I know the, the small independent papers haven't seen that at all. There's been very little in the way of election advertising from any of our candidates, to be honest, uh, with the exception of the sitting candidate, Mark Colton. And, and Marie, what about the impact of that big alleged big spend of uh, Clive Palmer in the Chinese yes. communities? Yes, we've seen that come through. So he's been spending a bit. I don't think it's only the Chinese community, so it's all the other different ethnic communities as well. We have seen that come through. And he has been uh, putting forward some very interesting policies, which I think are quite attractive to many of those in the Chinese community, especially on um, home ownership and um, some, some of the other healthcare policies as well. Has he been spending with you? Yes, he has. He has. Okay. And Lee, why no spend from him in your paper? Is that just indicative of where advertising dollars go or something? That's a very good question. I I think perhaps he's spending with the corporate titles. I think a lot of people are under the misconception that they have a very broad reach in regional New South Wales and they truly don't. So there could be a bit of misunderstanding there. But it's not just his party. It's, you know, Labor are coming in pretty late with a little bit of advertising. Um, the Greens really, are, we haven't seen any locally and or on our mobile app, which has, covers 11 areas. So I'm, I'm guessing they're covering Dubbo and Broken Hill, perhaps the bigger, mm. the bigger centres of population. Look, you haven't mentioned that huge inland rail project that Barnaby Joyce is so proud of and which I've been told, you know, is going to make Parks this incredible centre of investment for a while, not quite yet. Is that emerging as important or not? I wouldn't think so, not yet. It's only, It cuts through the eastern side of the Parks electorate, so really... I can't see that it'll make a great difference to the rest of the electorate, at least in the short term. And because it's the inland rail is like has very few stops. So in this part of the world, it stops in parks, which is Mm. not in the parks electorate. So then uh, there's a bit of a stop in Narromine and one in Narrabri and potentially Moree. Mm. So in terms of intermodals and concentration of investment and that sort of thing, it's at this stage it looks quite isolated. You know, we would hope that then the 
connecting infrastructure would make a difference to to most of the rest Mm. of the communities. But that other infrastructure, which is getting our roads back into order, which have been, you know, falling apart for the last 30 years, they're the critical things. And, you know, branch rail lines, because a lot of these communities lost their their connecting rail. You know, if you look at Burke and and places like that, they haven't had a rail line for 20 years Mm. or more. So... I think investment in other transport infrastructure is probably more important to our region's voters than the the bigger line. And look, finally to you, Marie, your paper is really a bit of an explainer, I would assume. Sort of, I think you see it as almost a cultural bridge from people who've arrived here and who haven't experienced necessarily a democracy. So that's uh, quite a responsibility in a way. Yes, it is. Um, Yeah, so we really have to try to um, get the government's message and also the different, um, or this time through the election, um, we try to get the viewpoints of different uh, political parties through to the community. A a lot of the Chinese community, they um, not only consume print and online digital, but WeChat also plays a huge role as well. And WeChat is one place where it's pretty much controlled by the Chinese government, so the narrative is very um, limited, So, which is why it makes it even more important for us um, in terms of print and website to try to get the unbiased narrative out there to people. Yes, there's been quite yeah. some controversy <laughs> about what's actually underway on WeChat, isn't there? Yeah, it's really interesting because at the what we saw towards um, in this election, also the last one too, but th- this one especially, the narrative is a lot more favourable towards Labor and a lot of the articles are playing on how Labor will be more friendlier towards China if they this want This is on WeChat, you say? Which, yes, oh. on WeChat. So, I mean, which may or may not be the case in reality, mm. but that's how it's being played out on WeChat at the moment. So. Mm. Uh, look, just a little light one to end. Where will you both be on election day? Will you be... <laughs> Will you be working or will you be actually at your local favourite polling station? Uh, first to you, Lee. Oh, the polling stations, there's not that many around here. So, yeah, we'll be at the polling station. And one of the other issues that has made a few people cranky is there are very few pre-polling oh. stations in our region. So uh, the, the nearest one to us is Dubbo, which is a two-hour drive. So, um, <laughs> you know, that that's not gone down well. But on polling day, I'll be at one or two polling stations, so in my local area with a camera, hopefully. With a camera. And, Marie, where will you be? Same here. We're going to be running around to a few of the polling stations, especially the ones with more Chinese voters, mm-hmm. like in, um, well, in Sydney here, it will be, you know, Reed and Benelon and Banks. These are all pretty mar- marginal seats, uh, and which is why I'm doing my voting this weekend, so I can get it out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be in Parramatta for Saturday Extra. We're going to do an outside broadcast from Parramatta, which is a very awesome. interesting seat, full of a range of different cultures. Uh, and so that I think that'll be fascinating, and we'll watch the voting open. Uh, during our show. Look, um, thank you very much indeed, Lee O'Connor and Marie Ma. Thanks, Thank you for having me. And Lee is uh, the managing editor of the Canamble Times. And look, you can drop in and buy a copy, by the way, as our producer Belinda Summer did when she was passing through Canamble's lovely main street, or check it out online. She said it was a real delight. Marie Ma is the, uh, Marie Ma is the general manager of Vision China Times. <laughs> The 
20th century poet Judith Wright was once described as our conscience of the nation. She's one of only two Australian poets to be considered for the Nobel Prize for Literature. She was also a committed conservationist and Aboriginal lands rights activist. Have a listen to the actor Kevin Brenner reading her poem, Drought Year. That time of drought, the embered air burned to the roots of timber and grass. The crackling lime scrub would not bear, and Mooney Creek was sand that year. The dingo's cry was strange to hear. I heard the dingo's cry in the whipstick scrub on the thirty-mile drive. I saw the wagtail take his fill, perching in the seething skull. I saw the eel wither where he curled in the last blood drop of a spent world. I heard the bone whisper in the hide of the big red horse that lay where he died. Prop that horse up, make him stand, hoofs turned down in the bitter sand, make him stand at the gate of the thirty-mile dry. Turn this way and you will die. And strange and loud was the dingo's cry. That's from the ABC archive, Drought Year. Judith is predominantly known for her poetry. But she also wrote reams of non-fiction, which for the first time have been put together into a new collection edited by the scholar Georgina Arnott. The book includes her essays, her speeches, her criticism, extracts from her own monographs. And the West Australian historian Tony Hughes' death has been closely mining the collected material because he believes it offers a whole lot more than usual in terms of Australian identity, really. And he joins me now. Welcome once more to Saturday Extra. It's a pleasure to be here, Geraldine. For a certain generation, Judith Wright was a towering figure in literature. But for those who don't know her, tell us a bit about her life, please. Judith Wright grew up on a pastoral station near Armadale in uh, New England. And uh, it was a wealthy family and uh, it was a certain kind of society, I suppose, of other wealthy pastoralists. Uh, at an early stage, her, her mother died and uh, she became a, a kind of um, forced to grow up, I suppose. She was clearly um, brilliant. Um, she went to University of Sydney. Um, in 1937, she travelled to Europe uh, as a number of other people of her generation and of her class did, mm. uh, and she was um, terrified by <laughs> what was happening there, which was uh, the world which was the bastion of civilization. Europe was descending headlong into a, a terrifying war, a war which was probably um, almost unique in, in exceeding its own terrors prior to that particularly the way that it culminated in the, the Holocaust and the nuclear mm. attacks. And all of these things kind of formed her when she came back um, to Australia. Um, she, she started to write poetry that uh, it was partly in the Australian sort of ballad tradition, I suppose, in that it was writing about her own um, family's kind of pioneering origins, really, and, and the bush myths that that circulated in her family. But uh, what was really notable about it when it first appeared in 1946 in, in, in the collection, the moving image of first collection, was uh, a, a moral seriousness that was probably just not visible before that in, and a particular critique of um, the 
pioneering myth, which uh, still feels quite scandalous when you read it. Well, in fact, um, you say that uh, she was all always ahead of her time and that this is something to... Re- she, she pivoted, my goodness, she pivoted, to use the word of the moment, um, much more than people might really realise. I mean, her first collection, The Moving Image, that was in 1946 and she was 31. That remains one of the landmark Australian literary works of the last century. But really, there's a lot of changes. And I think you believe that's what's on offer in this book. Yes. So uh, she has a remarkable life. I mean, if all she'd done was publish The Moving Image, she would still be a remarkable and uh, towering figure. I mean, one of the things that's really that really strikes me about reading The Moving Image. Before The Moving Image, um, when you wrote, read poems about Australia by colonists or, or you know, uh, settler Australians, Australia was always imagined as kind of um, young, a very young country or uh, kind of ineffably old, this ancient land. But Wright does something that, that's quite surprising. She, she, she treats Australia as middle-aged, <laughs> kind of <laughs> neither young nor old, but kind of in the throes of things. So it's got some scars. It's got some sort of problems. So she brings that kind of um, kind of down-to-earth sensibility, but also there's, there's moral seriousness. Now, she kept writing poems and that sort of thing. She was celebrated as a poet. But what happens really uh, is increasingly she turns to uh, a political activism. Mo- most particularly she turns to uh, the issue of conservation. Yes, and she, some of the the themes feel very contemporary. That that environmental writing, I mean, she really was years ahead, wasn't she, of, of people's con- consciousness about this? I feel we still haven't caught up. Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the, the the matters that she's raising, and, and she's in no under no illusions about the magnitude of the task ahead, uh, which she re, she writes in in her, her essay on conservation of 1968, conservation as a concept that it, it's a complete rethinking of what it means to be in the world. And she said in Australia we've we've grown up and it's ingrained as in our MO, if you like, mm. uh, to take the land. Our biggest problems were, you know, instrumental problems. Do we have enough water? How do we get this to port? How do we ship it off? What's the market going to do? It was just maximising return for investment. That was how Australia kind of operated. And realising that um, by, by the 1960s, uh, we, we had reached and exceeded limits, um, which which right now we're, we're um, really starting to appreciate. But back then that was uh, fanciful mm. and she was treated as a crank. Well, in 1962, and she sort of, she, she acted as well as talked about it, she founded the Wildlife Preservation Society of Queensland, which ended up being, um, you say, quite a significant political movement. Yeah, I mean, you've got to remember like Queensland, um, you know, I'm from Western Australia, Queensland's another um I guess frontier state in 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 that period and a resource state, so everything was kind of geared that way. Uh, we, we're talking about the Bjelke Peterson era. Uh, there was moves to um, uh, drill for oil in the Great Barrier Reef, um, to sand mine Fraser Island. Uh, basically, the same uh, the same approach kept um, being adopted, which was how can we make money from this thing? And her little sort of society, I suppose, just pr- preservation of wildlife, sounds sort of quaint like some bushwalks or people who like uh, looking at birds or whatever, uh, ended up becoming 
um, politicised to a high level, such that uh, it, it really is one of the, the key uh, moments in the birth of the Australian conservation movement. Mm. She was also an early champion of Indigenous writing. As a publisher's reader, for instance, at Jacaranda Press, she pushed for Kath Walker, who was later known as Ujiri Nunakal, to be published. And this was the first time an Indigenous poet had been published. Uh, yes, as poetry. Um, I mean, there was David Unipon, but but to have a um, this was published un, under um, Kath Walker. She was known then. Yeah, it, it just happened to come across the desk of Choose Rights. She was the the reader for that press, and there was a, it was an incredibly um, popular book. Like it sold hundreds of thousands of copies. It was uh, and it became a real landmark. But critics, on the whole found it to be simplistic, childlike, uh, repetitive, overly political, uh, and found and denigrated in every possible way as art, but nice enough, you know, mm. for its politics. Wright, who was, you know, a brilliant poet in her own right and grew up in, you know, within those kind of literary traditions, took a very different line. She immediately realised this is radical. This is, a, this is something completely new. Uh, we shouldn't Stop trying to bring categories that uh, find it lacking things. This is an Aboriginal person speaking in poetry, and this is an amazing uh, moment mm. in history. And just having the uh, the courage to, uh, I guess, abandon her privileges around um, owning aesthetic judgment, and and to to see something as his, of historical or epochal uh, significance. I I find it really amazing. Yeah, well, she served on the Aboriginal Treaty Committee from 1979 to 84, and she wrote We Call for a Treaty in 1985. So, you know, she sort of, again, she put her money where her mouth was. But look, there's another gorgeous thing that where she was ahead of her time, um, that she, basically, she had to cope with not being taken fully seriously by the males amongst her. To sentimentalise women is to despise them, she writes, in Women Writers in Society. And there's this amazing um, uh, words of Vincent Buckley, the the great uh, poet from the 1950s. When Wright is content to be a woman, enduring the profound incident of women's life, she's able, paradoxically enough, to transcend her womanliness and be a very fine poet. When she attempts to be not a woman but a bard, commentator or prophet, she becomes a bit of a shrew, which is the worst and most unwomanly of things that a woman may become. <laughs> Honestly, Tony, that took my breath away. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and she calmly repeats that. She adduces that quote years later. And what I find amazing about her is just her moral dignity. Um, she, she always looked... Um, I guess past the immediate situation. Sure, she's being denigrated uh, in this moment in, in 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 a cheap and idiotic way by um, someone who, who thought he was good. But the way she approaches her position is always um, not not to be defensive, but to sort of to, to rise above. I think she's a she's a beautiful poet. I mean, what, her second volume of poems, "Woman to Man," is all about her um, the poems written to her her baby in her. In her womb, and she 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 has a real sense of the importance of woman. Uh, it's hard to um, describe it sort of in in normal feminist terms, but she um, she understood that there was a particular place for woman and a particular place for men, and and then beyond that there was an and that, and that was okay, but beyond that there was the the actual problems of the world. Her other poem, Two Fires. 
I mean, it's such a uh, – sorry, another book of her poems, Two Fires. I think the two fires are also Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but they're also like the fire that started the world and the fire that will likely end the world. And she she just has an incredible metaphysical side to her, uh, which you see in her prose writing in, in Georgie's book, but, um, but she applies that to the world in practical ways. A prophet in the truest sense – of the word, who never forgot where she came from. That's one thing, that she was of the conquerors, you say. Yeah, and I think that's what Wright does in her poetry, um, in Moving Image, is to make a history that everyone knew about but didn't want to talk about, which was uh, violent dispossession, uh, genocide. She makes that intimate. She's like, there's a poem called Eroded Hills. Like, these are the hills whose, wo- whose woods my father stripped. You know, mm-hmm. so she makes these things, she owns uh, the acts, the destructive acts, the appropriative acts, uh, the exploitative acts. They're her. She doesn't say, that. oh, that happened before me, nothing to do with me. Those were the times, that's how people were. She says, this is me. I am of the conquerors. And I think it's that, and because it began in, in her own questioning of her own family, in a paradoxical sort of way, it ended up making her able to s- see the world, the problems of the world, with a, with an, um, a striking clarity. Wow. Okay. Uh, Tony Hughes-Death, it's uh, lovely to talk to you again. Thank you. Ah, it's great to be here again. Thank you very much. And uh, Tony Hughes-Death is Chair of Australian Literature at the University of WA. And the new book we discussed is Judith Wright, Selected Writings, edited by Georgina Arnott, and it's published by La Trobe University Press. And one of our texters has said, as you no doubt know, Judith Wright and Nugget Coombs, the, the great bureaucrat, were lovers. The suburbs of Wright and Coombs are now nestled side by side in Canberra's new Malonglo region. That's from David Wade in Canberra. That is that is really nice. And just like a lovely little follow-up, by the way, to our earlier discussion about the uh, Canamble Main Street, Geraldine and I recently met in Canamble an English drama teacher at the local high school who used to be a Financial Times journalist from London at the Mink and Me Cafe in Campbell. Canamble, worth a visit. Never know who you'll meet. Look, thank you very much. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Doog. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.